0: Welcome back to Recorded Conversations. I'm your host, Danielle Kingstrom, and you're now joining the podcast that is dedicated to compassionately considering all perspectives while engaging in authentic and connected conversations. I hope you enjoy today's show. You said you were going to record me, so record me.
1: Do you want to do a test first real quick? Make sure it sounds okay.
0: I don't know my micro, my headphones.
1: I don't know where your headphones are at.
0: Okay, I found them.
1: Okay, thank goodness. Shut up. <laughs> this should be part of it. I know. <laughs> here's
0: here's the unedited version of our fuckery before we get going here. Only this time you're kind of yelling at me.
1: Yes, I am. I'm being demanding tonight, damn it. Lean in. Yes, ma'am.
0: Get closer to this this rounded area here that looks like the, a nice head <laughs> of a microphone. <laughs>
1: we know where your mind is at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. Okay. So this episode, we're going to do things just a little bit differently. Tonight, I am going to interview Danielle.
0: Suddenly, he's a professional.
1: I'm not a professional by any standard.
0: Or an expert.
1: Not even my kid's standard.
0: No. Okay.
1: All right, so first question, first thing I'm going to say is that I've noticed you having a lot of debates on your Facebook, Facebook about sex lately. You're, you're pushing boundaries, you're...
0: Pissing liberals off.
1: Asking questions. I don't and know if
0: he's a liberal, actually.
1: Anyway, so I'm, I guess where I'm going to start is what got you into digging into the sexual realm of erotica and relating that to theology
0: well because i've always i've always been interested in sex since i was little so and i'm not going to reveal too much about that because that's going to be in the book but it's just always been a part of my history i always had open-minded parents who were willing to talk about all curious topics that a little girl evolving in a material world would have especially growing up watching madonna Uh, Honestly, Madonna and Michael Jackson, like music itself, really, really brought sexuality into my purview. I don't know why, from a very young age, I could discern that there was something erotic, maybe even forbidden, about what I was watching. And, of course, my grandmother's reactions whenever I would turn MTV on at her house kind of gave way to that, too, that there was something taboo. Um, But more so more recently my direct pushback has been against people who who come to me privately and want to offer me mentorship and guidance and I guess their their idea of their encouragement in a way that kind of tries to silence me and shush me but tells me to dig deeper a lot of men have a problem with me wanting to equate the love of Eros on, like, the same level as Agape, which I don't think I'm necessarily trying to do because I think in nature there are hierarchies that are, like, evident that you can't get rid of. And so I would assume that if nature is also created in the image and likeness of God, then hierarchy has some kind of place somewhere. I don't think hierarchy necessarily means better. Maybe just more progressed or advanced. I don't know what, I don't know. There's so many things I don't know, but so anyway, so I'm not necessarily trying to erase any kind of a hierarchy or superiority of any kind of love, but I want to, I want to show it in a way that I see it, that I see it because of us, that I see it because of what I experience, And I can't help but feel convicted in sharing the information because we have like a really bad idea of sexuality and the erotic and we compartmentalize it. And I don't think it should be separate from our spirituality. I don't think we should just define ourselves by what we believe theologically. I think we also need to incorporate our personality, even our shadow side, even our erotic side. And It seems like too many people want to compartmentalize it, and I really don't like that. I want to integrate it. I have personally worked very hard to integrate my own sexual identity with who I am with my other roles as a mother, and now as a grandmother, just in the things that I do every day that don't necessarily define who I am, but demonstrate what my passions are, writing, and even to some sense, debating is one of my passions. I'm just trying to integrate myself and to understand who I am as an actual being, and I know that sexuality is a part of that, and I know the erotic is a part of that, and I know that it's not a bad thing or a negative part of nature.
1: Okay, so that actually brought up a couple more questions from what you just said. Now, when you say a hierarchy and you talk about a hierarchy in nature, are you talking about a hierarchy within a marriage as well, or are you how how do how do you work that out in your head?
0: Okay, so well, in nature, I think a hierarchy is obvious. Just look at like a food chain, for instance. There's always going to be a bigger animal that dominates another one in order to survive must kill another. in our in our own life, we see that there's this constant circle of life and death, but it all depends. The sustainment requires a hierarchy. It requires an act of one individual that says to another individual, in order to continue our legacy, in order to sustain our civilization, we need to do this, which means we have to have sex and produce a baby because we have to continue ourselves because that's what we're like biologically programmed to do, to survive, and in order to survive, we must multiply. So with that, we have to observe that there are certain roles and positions that are required for sustaining our lives, which means caring for our children and which means caring for our families, which means being able to provide financial means so that we can continue sustaining. And so, yeah, I think within any kind of committed relationship, which particularly includes parents and and offspring, yeah, there has to be some kind of a a positioning balance not that one is greater or less than the other but that one is I don't know more resilient to conflict and can still maintain while there's another person that is able to put the fires out so to speak behind the scenes so whether that's a woman did any of that make sense or am I rambling
1: No, it makes sense.
0: Okay, and so then it doesn't matter if it's a man or a woman necessarily that's maintaining one of the roles and the other is maintaining the other, although civilization and history demonstrates it's typically the woman that raises the children, and not just in the human species, but that's predominant in many animal species as well. I know there are exceptions to the rule. And I think, honestly, that in that kind of relationship. There's too much biological wiring that I think is distinctly obvious in in the differentiation between man and woman, mom and dad, in which the roles aren't necessarily like assigned based on societal constructs, but just on what makes sense. Like a child grew in me, I have a closer bond with that child. I literally have the physical, biological means to sustain that child, ergo my boobs and my breast milk. And that child is already connected to me, to my smell, to my aura, to my voice. And so you kind of want to continue that continuity of that connection. And that doesn't necessarily like negate anything a father contributes, but a father doesn't have that kind of sparked connection and therefore... Is, is dominated, I think, by another type of biological wiring, which is protection and sustainment of wife and child. And so that's why the father goes out and works, and the mother can stay at home or what have you. Or back in prehistoric days, it was the men that were the hunters and the gatherers, the men that took the risk because it was more important for the women to survive. Because the women could reproduce, not and, and it was usually assumed not all of the men would be wiped out because all of the children were still back at home. That tribe could continue to sustain if all of the hunters left. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's like, I know a lot of people don't see it that way, but I kind of see it as kind of like, you know, that verse in the Bible that talks about how, and the husband is supposed to sacrifice his life like Christ did for the church. Well, that means you're literally, like, making sure that you're the one, you're the one blockage between any kind of obstacle or threat or endangerment to the continuation of you. You take a bigger risk, and I think that is a self-sacrifice, and, I mean, really, if you look at it, men do more dangerous jobs, but by and large, those dangerous jobs that they take the risk to do benefit not just men, but women, too. And so, I don't know. Yeah, there's an obvious hierarchy that's been... Predominant in not just human society but animal society and I don't think there's a need to ignore that hierarchy because again hierarchy doesn't necessarily mean better than or worse than it's just an ordering it's just an arrangement
1: so I think tying this in let we'll share a little bit about how our marriage works you know, obviously I go out, I work outside of the home, bring home the bacon, so to speak. But this wasn't something that I just decided on my own. No. This was a very week-long conversation we had, and me maybe it was longer than that, about how this was all going to work.
0: Right, because when we first started dating, was I even working? I wasn't even working when we were dating. No, I was always unemployed. <laughs> <laughs> no one wants to hire me. No, but I wasn't even working when we were we started seriously dating, and I wasn't interested in looking for work either. But it wasn't so much that it was just um, I did start working
1: after the first time you went to jail in our relationship.
0: Yes. And I, had I gotten a job before then, I probably wouldn't have went to jail.
1: That's very true.
0: Yeah. But when I did start working, God, we were already into our relationship like nine months the first time I got a job. Yep. So I did start working, and I had that job for almost a year, and then they let me go. And that really sucked, but we had agreed that I would stay at home because we had looked at how much I was spending on daycare. I was needing you to help me with daycare.
1: Well, yeah, but you went. You got. had two jobs, though, in there. We were for one steel company. Well, I wasn't were... there yet. Oh, sorry.
0: Yeah. And so then I was unemployed for a while. I think like a year until Julian finally went to school. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. And then once Julian went to school, you were like, well, are you going to get a job? And I was like, yeah, I should probably get a job because there there wasn't a kid at home anymore. Yes. And so, yeah, I got a job. But then I got pregnant and it was like, well, I could just work this job just to pay for daycare
1: basically and that's
0: literally i would have i think when i did it i would have made a hundred dollars a week and it was like was all of that worth a hundred dollars a week the additional driving the additional anxiety and worry and travel with the kids and busing arrangements and no i couldn't make it work and i knew i was going to miss so much work too i mean that happens when you have a baby you've got all these appointments your baby gets sick all the time stuff like that Yeah. And so we had, we had talked about it. And I mean, we like laid out pro and con lists and we were like looking at it from a financial standpoint and working out all the angles. And this wasn't about like me maintaining my actual, like traditional role in the house. It was just what made sense. And I would have been happy either way. I mean, I liked working, Eh, but not really because now I look back and I love not having to work. I hated working. I missed out on so much with my kids, and I wasn't a career chaser either. I was like, I need to get by because i got to take care of my kids, but my mom was a stay-at-home mom, and I wanted to be that. Like, initially in high school, I didn't want kids, but then I got pregnant in high school. I mean, I had a dream. I was going to go live in New York, go to law school, be a badass attorney make lots of money like I wasn't even like concerned with kids or marriage or nothing. I was going to go live like the Carrie Bradshaw freaking life from sex in the city. No joke. And that was my goal. And then I got pregnant and it literally was like all of that is done, gone. I wasn't even going to chase after it. It was like, "Okay, new plan." And my plan was I need to be there for this kid because her dad wasn't really there and then I had another kid two years later with the same guy and eh, my goal was always survive it wasn't career chase and balance work with kid life and when I had the opportunity because we talked about it yeah hands down I was staying at home I was going to be at home with my kids because I missed so much with the first two that I didn't want to go through that again. And you were okay with it. Yes. And we had to get serious about budgeting and cutting debt. We did Dave Ramsey. We graduated from Financial Peace University. And literally the next day, we put $90,000 of debt on our credit.
1: Yes, buying two. I wouldn't recommend buying two brand, two new, vehicles brand new vehicles
0: on, on the, the same, same day. day. It, I mean, like what, what? But we were like, we don't have any debt. Yeah, let's get some debt. It was like the dumbest thing.
1: I mean, our license plates are only one number off.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was so dumb. But I mean, we had to get serious about everything when I decided to be a stay-at-home mom. A lot of our our spending habits, our socializing habits, our traveling habits changed. But we also came to a different lifestyle too. We moved to a farm. That's right. And we and I found love with this place. I was like, "Yep, this is me."
1: I think it's a love-hate relationship. It is. Really.
0: It really is. I love it, but I do freaking hate it. But I love it. I won't leave it.
1: Hey, I feel the same I, way about I, I'm, me. I'm, well, yeah, and I'm sure you feel <laughs> the same way about me. Yeah, that's where I was really going. I hate with that, that I
0: love you, but I love that I hate you, or something.
1: Uh, yes, something like that. <laughs> Crap! Now I forgot my next question. Was gonna ask.
0: Moving on.
1: Moving on. Okay, so let we'll we'll go away from our our relationship now. I had one other question that going back a little ways that I wanted to ask. How how often do people call you with either personal issues they just need someone to talk about talk to, or about sexual issues possibly within their marriage that they just need either someone to listen to them or maybe a little bit of advice?
0: So much that in hindsight, I wish I would have created a website a year ago and charged for it. That wouldn't be authentically me because I would feel really guilty, but all the time. um, I think people know that I'm just willing to listen to them. I think because most people, I'm gonna say 99.9% of the general population of the entire world just wanna be heard and seen. And know they matter. And I've always noticed this. And, and when I first started, when I really first started observing it about myself, I actually kind of hated it and rejected it. But I I have to give off some kind of vibe that tells people, all your shit is safe with me. I am not going to give you that stink eye. I'm not going to look my down my nose at you. I'm not going to be like, oh, my God, I can't believe you did that. I'm gonna listen to you and whatever you tell me, it's not gonna shock me. It's not gonna make me feel all icky. I'm just gonna go, okay, keep going, get it out. So yeah, I get a lot of calls. Last week, within the last week, I've had three people who were just like, I need to vent. Can I, and and, and one of the, no, two of the people I have never spoken to on the phone before. One person I've had absolutely no interaction with that I can recall I don't even know how long I've been friends with this person honestly like I was like who is this guy who's messaging me I think it was like at one o'clock in the morning can you talk first he tried to call me and I was like I accidentally hit end I didn't realize a call was coming and I was like did someone just try and call me and then I got a message can you talk and I was like oh I was just about to go to bed and he's like forget about it go to bed and I was like no what's up and he said something like, I just want to express my freedom of speech. And then he said, I feel like nobody hears me. And I said, call. And he called. And we talked for like an hour and a half. Well, he did most of the talking, honestly. I know, I know that sounds weird because I talk all the damn time. But really, um, he did most of the talking. And what he shared with me was a lot of personal stuff. But so insightful and had such a great perspective of life, even though he had been through so many hardships and trials and tribulations and suffering, but he still had such a positive mentality about it. And it was really inspiring. And, it, you know, these all these calls came through on a week that I was feeling really negative about myself, too. Like, I was kind of just sitting back like, why am I doing this? Because I was getting... It was just... I was getting so much pressure from like these intellectual circles who just wanted me to basically concede to the fact that my, my translation definition of a damn word, Eros, is wrong, even though most of the ideas that I speak to about Eros come from great scholars. They're not my own ideas. They're somebody else's. And um, anyway, I was feeling really down about myself. I was beating myself up. I was telling myself negative internal messages and questioning why I was even doing this. And then, I don't know, it was just through talking to these people and just listening to their, like, kind of mantra of life was, I do, I do me for me, is basically what the general gist of the overall illuminations of the other people, representative of their personality. They're the kind of people that are like, I just do me for me. And I was like, yeah, and that's why I do what I do. Just for me. And so it kind of was like there was a lot of resonance and I really liked it. But I, I mean, yeah, people call and, and and write all the time. And a lot of people share some some really vulnerable private stuff with me that I treasure and be trusted enough to know. Yeah, I just try and listen. I think people just want someone else to listen to them. And that's why I really love conversation. Because my favorite part of conversation is actually listening. And you've said that to me. You said last week that you actually like to listen. You said, I like listening to you. And I said, what? You do? And you said, yeah, I like listening to you. And you really like when we talk or when I talk because you like to listen to me. And I was kind of like shocked by that a little bit. I'm like, don't you think I talk too much?
1: So, some Okay, yeah. Well, yeah, sometimes I do. Sometimes you do. Uh, <laughs> no, but there there are specific times when, when I know she's writing or something like that where I will come into her office, and it's also our smoking room, and, and have a cigarette. And, and I'll bring my phone with me, and I'll just stare at something. And sometimes she gets irritated that I come in and, and listen. But sometimes I will be into an article that I'm reading, and all of a sudden the dead will come to life and she'll just start blabbing on to me like we had been having a 20 minute conversation about whatever she happened to just read and sometimes it does annoy me because i'm in the middle of reading something but i enjoy it that's why i come in here yeah because i do enjoy listening to what you're currently researching about
0: yeah it's usually always about sex
1: Yeah, which is, I I happen to be a benefactor of that. I'm not going to lie.
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, but it is fun just to have these discussions with you, too, because, you know, and that's what I see can be problematic with a lot of relationships is they're not willing. A lot of people are just not willing to have these kind of authentic conversations just like this, just sharing ideas without concern about, honestly, so many people are so concerned about being PC. And that's one of the things I notice when I talk to people. They don't, they want to be real, right? We're always said, say what's on your mind, speak your truth. Now we're in the society where we're like, well, is what I'm saying going to be seen as sexist, misogynistic? Uh, Is it toxic masculinity to say this? Is it, is it possibly racist? I don't know. Is it prejudice? It's not bigoted, is it? It's not homophobic, is it? I mean, I don't want to offend any of these, these ideas. And you're, and sometimes I have to go, dude, just speak. Say what's on your mind. Don't worry about what you're saying. Like, I'm not going to, I say that all the time when I'm in, you know, they've poured out to me 20 minutes and that suddenly I think they start going, hmm, I wonder if I've overshared. You know, I feel like that too, like everywhere. I'm always like, okay, I just overshared, but I can see the look on a lot of people's faces where they're like, yeah, you overshared, but I don't think people can overshare with me. Honestly, people tell me some stuff. And they always say, I, I, I went too far, didn't I? And I'm like, nope, I'm not judging you. Keep
1: going. And you will tell someone if they've gone too far. I mean, how many guys have hit on you?
0: <laughs> and I have. And, or it's not that I'll say you've gone too far. I'll say, I'm not really comfortable with this conversation yet. Or I'll say, you know, I can't imagine you'd say this to my husband. Or if my husband was right here, would you be as confident acting this way? Because I always try and establish a line. And I and I think I make it pretty clear about myself that I do represent a commitment to you in all that I do, in everywhere that I go, in everything that I write to, in all that I speak to. I am not seeking anything else. Don't give me that look. But I think it's pretty clear. and. I mean, yeah, some have just tried to toe the line, I think, to be daring and rebellious and be like, oh, she says she's non-judgmental. Let's push those buttons. And so sometimes I'll be like, eh, you know, the thing is, is like, I understand that you want to talk about this in particular, but what it makes me really think you want to talk about is this. And I'll try and find a deeper message between... Or or from the shocking thing that they say. Because I honestly think that a lot of people don't initially say what they mean sometimes. And especially in like that when you're in the confines of anonymity where you can, where you know that you can just as easily like hang up or block a number or, or block someone on social media and not have to worry about consequence or reaction. And so there's that too, which I think is why there's a lot of dick pics going around. And a lot of blocked ass people because it's like anything, anything more impressive than a dick, I guess, does not exist any longer. Like, I don't know, conversation, but whatever. Boobs. Boobs, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, like I got a dick pic last week on my Instagram and he was like, are you impressed? And I'm like, try conversation, that will impress me. And he's like, really? Really?
1: I mean, honestly, that's the best way to turn you on. All I got to do is use big words.
0: Exactly. I'll just
1: go to the dictionary once in a while and just find some random big word and try to use it in a sentence, and I know I'm going to be all right that night.
0: Yep, yep, yep. Verbosity is sexy. Yes, (laughs) definitely.
1: All right, then. Okay, so I I did notice a, a particular Facebook conversation that you actually brought to my attention before we started recording oh, yeah. that, you, that you wanted to discuss a little bit. So what, why, why don't you uh, lead into that? You, you don't have to read it necessarily. But...
0: No, I'm going to read it. Okay. I'm going to read it because now I can't find it. Hold on. <laughs> so I said the people that push hardest against new ideas about love and sex are the ones having the most trouble with it in their own lives. And now that was a very pointed post directed at somebody, an intellectual, as he so calls himself, a Bible scholar who doesn't like my formulations of intertwining Eros and the erotic with agape and kenosis because translation, translation, translation. And so I shot back at him, which might have been juvenile, But I shot back at him and I said, you know, I said sometimes it's an indicator of a problematic personal problem when people push back against things like this so hard. And someone concurred with that idea and talked about all of the anti-gay pastors you see in the evangelical circles who end up actually coming out as gay. And so it's instances like that. The people that push the hardest against new ideas or progress usually have some kind of I don't know, remorse or shame or guilt or self-hatred over the topic because maybe because they either fail in it or they can't confidently embrace it as a part of their identity. And so that's what it is. And if you want to be honest about things, psychology would point to this being a likely deduction to make about somebody. Now, somebody else pointed out that psychology would also suggest that the same can be said about people who are most boisterous and loud and vocal over something that they're trying to push for to be accepted are often people who themselves are having problems with this area. And so, a typical evangelical argument that I have seen is that those who argue for universalism Are just wrestling with their understandings about their own sin and aren't willing to forgive themselves or something. And so they seek out a God who is all forgiving because they can't accept the fact that they're going to burn in hell for eternity. Stuff like that. And so I get that. Or some would say, like, what, this stupid preacher that I was writing for a while back? Do you remember that dude I was writing for on his blog? And when I started just asking him questions about the Trinity, because we were talking to the Jehovah witnesses and we were just trying to understand things, he reacted without responding and reflecting, called me a heretic because I was just talking to him about the Trinity in a different perspective, kind of like just questioning the Trinity and he was really insulted. And um, I totally lost my train of thought right now. Good job. What the hell just happened? I don't know. I looked over at my plant there and noticed the lush greenness of it. Lush. Lush. Sounds like lust. Where was that going? I don't know. Huh. Let's think
1: about this. I don't think you should edit this out. This is kind of funny, actually. <laughs>
0: Is she high? Okay, and so now I remembered because I stopped recording and I went back and I re-listened. And so what I'm talking about is so someone was trying to basically turn around on me and say that the reason that I've been so vocal about sex and sexuality and erotic desire is because I'm having problems in my own personal life and might be projecting. Corey, my love, tell me about our erotic dysfunction, please. (laughs)
1: well (laughs) Um, well right
0: now we're recording a podcast instead of having sex and that's a dysfunction
1: yeah that is true I mean I was kind of hoping that you would have some nice lingerie oh and next
0: time we'll call it a corset conversation yes and I will wear a corset while we're recording a recorded conversations episode
1: And I will describe it in explicit detail.
0: Men aren't usually explicit with details when it comes to sexual imagery. I got nothing. Okay.
1: Anyway, so...
0: (laughs) (laughs) Tell me about our erotic dysfunction.
1: Oh, yeah. I I did. Yes. (laughs) Um, Case
0: closed. End of story. We done.
1: Well, I I don't know what, what more there is to really tell than what we've talked about in the past. I mean, we... People want details.
0: They want to know all the positions.
1: Well, there's a lot of positions. I'll be, you know, that right Who now.
0: measures? Who measures? <laughs> I mean, who cares? Here And here's what I said in response to that. Well, I'm not going to say it verbatim because I don't remember fully, but it was along these lines of, no, homie, I'm good. I do not... Hello, I I... I posted on my dad's birthday that I was basically going to get laid. Nice. Right? Like I pointed out the date, nine thirteen. pointed out the full moon, talked about whatever, uh, Pisces and Virgo and Scorpio or whatever it was.
1: You can't even remember.
0: I know. And I sit here and I'm like, I love astrology. (laughs) I didn't say I was an expert. Okay? No. No, our sex life is good. Yeah, Our sex life is curious.
1: Yes, it is.
0: It's, it's, we don't try and constrain it. Obviously, it's contained because we need to, because I think you need to understand things before you do things. Yes. But it's experimental. Very. It's curious. It's about discovery. It's about surrender. And it is about transcendence. It's beyond the present moment. Honestly, we're not struggling. What I'm struggling with is intellectual articulation that can satisfy the little snobs of sophistication that need to have some kind of fucking empirical data presented to them in a goddamn logical syllogism where they can declare whether or not it's sound or not. And it's bullshit because, come on, the erotic is the chaos.
1: Okay, so I'm going to do a little rant on theologians. Please, dude,
0: theologians.
1: Whatever. See, I can't even pronounce it right. Neither so-
0: can they because they can't <laughs> agree on their freaking translations.
1: <laughs> okay, so here, here's here's my little rant. One, they base their experience, their, their connection with God on a book.
0: They don't talk about a connection.
1: Okay, but well, it's Well, still- some do. It's still all based on a book. And I'm sorry, whether or not the Bible existed or not, God would still exist. That's my first point. My second point is that my interpretation, my belief in the Bible, is that the Bible is man's interpretation of God. Yeah. So to get all tied up in the. Uh, 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 translation translation, that's the word I was looking for sorry (laughs) in the translation in the grand scheme of things does it really matter I mean does I, I personally don't believe it does you may disagree with me but I don't think it does because I think the Bible should be read like a novel I don't think we should cherry pick verses here and there to to support our beliefs because I'm sorry every theologian does that Every pastor does that, depending upon which denomination you you are 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 in, and which is how we get the di- different denominations to begin with. And so, I, I struggle with this a lot. If you need the book, the Bible, to justify God, then I think there's, I think you're missing the mark.
0: Yeah, missing the mark big time. My problem. Look, I, I actually do appreciate theology. I think I have a slightly higher appreciation for it than you do. That's only because there have been numerous theologians, and I, I would say just even theological scholars. I, I don't know how those people differentiate their classifications of expertise and education, but I know a lot of people, I know a lot of people of God who have been able to articulate to me a more beautiful image of God in such a way that it has actually transformed my life and transformed my perspective. And so I hold them in appreciation, but what I don't do is idolize them. And what I don't do is say Lewis or Merton or Chesterton or MacDonald or Boyd or whomever has the definitive theological interpretation, and all, of all. I take bits of what everybody is saying and I relay it to my own experiences and that's what I'm hoping that they do from the scholars that they turn to and then in turn write from. I think we all have the possibility to influence each other and our experiences and our perspectives based on what we're willing to share whether it be in a published book or whether it be in a conversation over coffee. And so while I appreciate their work and their articulation, I can learn just as much from a random stranger at a fast food restaurant as I can from, you know, Thomas Merton. So
1: I learned just as much from my kids as I do from anybody exactly.
0: else. I, I exactly. Learned, I learned so much about God when I really really started getting serious about gardening and when I really started observing myself as the role of a mother in relationship with other created beings. There's so much that you can learn from your everyday experiences that show you better pictures of what God resembles than any man or woman could ever put to words. And so I don't want to forget that. I appreciate the people who are willing to invest their time and energy into producing volumes of work that encapsulates their idea of God because I think, like I said, if it has a transformative power with me, it can transform people who really need to be transformed, which is all of us, by the way. We all have to be transformed. But there are different gifts available from different people for different varieties of people who are seeking out gifts of others. So nobody's perspective and experience and articulation and sharing of their experience is better or worse than the other. Because there are artists who paint pictures who use no words at all that can express the mystery of God that no writer could ever put to words. So we forget about that. And so that's just, I, that's just intellectual snobbery. That's all it is. Sometimes theology turns into just another circle of intellectual snobbery, just like psychology, just like philosophy, just like the sciences. It's just all snobbery. It's all people who want to be, who want to cling to their expertise and to their, their positions of superiority so they feel set apart. And I think these people are really showing that they're feeling completely isolated and alienated which is why they cling to their superior roles because i don't really think they feel included that's why they
1: exclude Maybe. I mean that's not to say these people aren't smart. They well,
0: are. Oh, they're brilliant. They're
1: brilliant people. But they're
0: still stupid. <laughs> Seriously, so stupid to the simplicity that is available to them. It's annoying. That's a good vent on theology. But and, and ultimately, what did i say? Like if you're if you Prescribed to the idea of universalism, that all shall be saved, that everybody is forgiven. Honestly, does anybody's theology matter? Not really. Does what anybody does matter? No. No. And that doesn't mean we shouldn't exploit evil and expose it and, what did I just read, march it through the streets naked. That doesn't mean we shouldn't point out what is evil. But But what's better than pointing out evil is just demonstrating good.
1: But that is still a gray area, to point out evil in and of itself, because how long was the gay community evil? Yeah. Okay, so just because I think something is evil now, because of societal norms... Yeah. I mean, so it's such a gray area, and, and I fought against you on this one a few times, of, of pointing out evil... I mean,
0: who gets to define what is evil?
1: Exactly. I mean, it's just a different perspective. Now, I, I, I mean, I'm not I'm not saying that murder is good. I mean, I, I truly believe that is evil. OK, um, but you get into the whole area of war, for that matter, which which evil is worse, you know, that type of, of scenario. And so, I mean, there's still a, a lot of gray area in that. But to call out evil, it's still subjective, I think.
0: It is, but... And then also, I think people also believe that when you call out evil, you have to follow it up with something, with an action. And I don't necessarily believe that to be true.
1: But you still have to go on the basis of what is evil and who determines that.
0: Yeah. And so that's where words are important. And so that's where I guess I can understand the need for proper translation. But here's where my problem is when people, like, cling to their translations. And this is something I wanted to speak to earlier is an individual who told me that translations were necessary and basically kind of set the definitive tone for how a word could ever be construed or used or defined also then told me that I needed to remember Derrida and how he said words have power. And I thought it was such a contradiction because initially I was jiving with Derrida and I was jiving with this whole like ambiguous wordplay make all words, like, subjective, and we're allowed to say, but they're fecund words, and they can grow, and they can evolve, and what used to mean this can now mean this, and da-da-da-da-da. That makes me suspicious of how much we care about the meaning of words, because if any word can mean anything, or if any word can continue to expand, then how can you, in the same regard, turn around and get upset at me because I am misconstruing Some kind of a definition of a word. Isn't that what Derrida was about? You don't know this, but uh, from my interpretation of Derrida, what he was about was about manipulating words. And I don't think we should manipulate words too much. If we're going to change the meaning of words, fine, that happens. That happens with society and progression. But it's a general consensus, and most people agree on it. And then we're all kind of given, like, this memo, like, gay now does not mean happy. You know what I mean? And so I have a problem with that. If you want to cling to translations, but then also call to Derrida, unless someone can tell me otherwise, I'm seeing this as a a contrariety. I'm seeing this as suspicious to juxtapose the two ideas together and then get pissed at me because you think, from your perception, that I'm improperly using Eros, which I'm not. So
1: There's Beatrice, by the way. Happy to introduce her.
0: Oh, the name of my ego. Yes. Yeah, I have never told anyone that I've named my ego.
1: Well, now the Cat's cat, out of the bag, exactly. and I will decide
0: whether or not I edit that out. <laughs> People are going to be like, you named your ego, you freak. What are you doing? My life coach
1: So I'm going to just it. drop that name several times throughout this podcast. Oh, and he'll that let you way, know
0: when it's my ego speaking and not my authentic self.
1: I uh, That way she can't edit out everything... You know, and. you
0: don't call out my ego when I am wearing lingerie and have some coconut oil handy. That is not
1: true. I have done that.
0: Okay, but you don't <laughs> seem to have a problem with that.
1: I don't have a problem with it now. So
0: it's just all about what the outfit. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should just end there, unless you have any further questions my dear interviewer
1: no it has been a a a pleasure to interview you i will interview you more in depth on in depth
0: oh i'll get a second interview later yes oh (laughs) (laughs) that sounds fascinating
1: it will be yes yes yes
0: all right well with that take care To connect with me or to see what else I'm working on, I encourage you to find me on patreon.com slash Danielle Kingstrom. My written work is also featured on Patheos Progressive Christian, and you can connect with me on social media, Facebook at Danielle Kingstrom, Instagram, and Twitter at DKingstrom. And until next time, thank you for listening. Take care.